So, I'm so f***ed up. I, I don't know when this is gonna end. I have another 40 miles to ride. Like, I'm f I, what the f This is the Bike Pack Racing Podcast with Ezra Ward-Packard and Andrew Onerma. Welcome back to the Bike Pack Racing Podcast. This is episode 27. I'm your host, Ezra Ward-Packard. Andrew's here. Andrew, how's it going? Going great, man. I'm excited about this conversation. It's been a while, so yeah, I'm excited. Racing season is here, and we are getting it rolling with, I'm going to call him a legend of the sport. He's been doing it. Yeah. Since, he's shaking his head right now. <laughs> he's already yeah. shaking his head now. <laughs> Our guest today is, we're going to talk about it, but in my opinion, a legend of bike pack racing in the industry for a very long time, Jeff Kirkove. Jeff, how's it going, dude? It is excellent. You just got back from Sedona Mountain Bike Fest this past weekend. How was that? Uh, the event was good. Um, the weather wasn't ideal. We got like a foot of snow leading up to like two days out. But luckily, like people were already committed to coming. So they showed up and the event kind of went off uh, as it should. There was only a couple of days of actual riding. But other than that, it was it was what everybody could hope for, given the the weather that happened leading up to it. Nice. So you work for Ergon, correct? Yeah, I've been I've been with Ergon now for 16 years. Okay. Is Sedona Mountain Bike Fest like one of your bigger events that you're going to? Like what are kind of like the big industry events? Because I know a few years back, like inner bike kind of went to the wayside. Like what are those like sort of key events? These yeah, days? like for, for us with Ergon, it's like the events that we get the most bang for our buck and that are the most enjoyable or uh, like consumer facing events where there's not really a race attached to it. So like Sedona mountain bike festival where, or sea otter classic, for example, people are there to basically just immerse themselves in bike culture. So yeah. to touch product, to see product, to ride product, demo product. Um, and then, you know, in the case of sea otter, it's like they actually get to race as well, but you know, and typically I probably do five events a year. We try to focus on quality over quantity. So something like Sedona that brings in four or 5,000 people and they're basically all standing there right in front of you, ready to, to absorb any knowledge and talk product is those are the events that are, that are worth the investment in the travel. Yeah, for nice. sure. I think it's worth touching on. What is your actual title with Ergon? What do you do for them? I'm the janitor, everything. <laughs> um, in reality, it's, you know, some marketing, customer service, e-commerce. Those are the, basically the three biggest things. Um, so it's like I handle all the athlete sponsorships with North American athletes in the U.S. and Canada. Um, pretty much if you send an inquiry through the Ergon website, either from the U.S. or Canada, that comes to me. If we're you know, doing Sedona Mountain Bike Festival, it's like I'm the one that's driving the van there and setting it up and you know, talking shop for two, three days, um, you know, handling warranties and stuff like that. So it's we have a small team in the U.S. There's only like there's only three. There's only four of us. So it's everybody kind of has their duties that they have to do, but then the rest of it is everybody does what they have to do to get the job done. So, so I'm curious about kind of your like very beginning in the sport. I know you're from the Midwest, Iowa, correct? Correct. Yep. Awesome. So as a fellow, like Midwest boy, like getting into cycling is not like the normal thing. So like, what was that 
like draw to cycling like when did you first start riding a bike i guess like seriously yeah i mean so i grew up in northern iowa in a, in a town of 500 people so super small farm community the bike was always just a part of just life like that was pretty much how you got that's how you got to school that's how you got to baseball practice um it's how you went to a friend's house that lived five miles out of town on the gravel road it it basically just grew from there um I would guess probably my senior year of high school, we saw an, uh, an advertisement for a mountain, like a small cross-country mountain bike race down near Des Moines. And we went and did it, myself and some friends, and we were pretty much hooked from that point on. So then as like, this would have been back in probably like 90s, 1996. So it was, yeah, we did the first one and then it was like, where can we find more? So then it's like, we were traveling to Minnesota and doing the Minnesota mountain bike series and we we're traveling to wisconsin and doing the the war series yep and and it was basically just cross country that's all that existed after that kind of ran its course i can remember my dad at one point saying pretty much after most of my cross country races it's like i would finish like 10th or 11th or 12th or something like that and i get done he's like you're not even tired and i'm like i'm not tired and, but i went as hard as i could go and then on a just on a whim, it's like a couple of years later, it's like, there's a 24 hour race in Wisconsin, the 24 hours a nine mile. And I was like, holy crap, let's ride your bike for 24 straight hours. You know, it's like, this is unheard of. So it's like, went and did that. And like, immediately found success. Like I finished second, which was, I surprised myself. I surprised some other people that were there. And that was kind of the launching point. It's like, that then turned into me doing 12 hour races and 24 hour races pretty much around the country everywhere you know wisconsin minnesota it's like montana it's like i was fortunate enough to go to japan and do a 24 hour race yeah it was that was kind of the catalyst to like where i'm at now because the 24 hour and 12 hour scene kind of fizzled out and the natural progression was bikepacking but now it's 24 hours you're looking at 48 hours and 96 hours and, you know, five day events, six day event, eight day events. So it's, it just continues to evolve. It's like, for me, it's just about finding adventure and finding something that's motivating and fun. So the bikepacking kind of fills that, that, that void, I guess, in my life right now. Why do you, and this right. is like, why do you think that like the 12 and 24 hour distance like has fizzled? Because I feel like in a way it's like almost more accessible <clears throat> than bike packing because you are right. on a closed circuit you have support you're seeing you know you can like consistent resupplies where i feel like like gravel is definitely exploding but i feel like so much of the spirit of gravel almost is that 24 hour 12 hour mentality yep. of like yes there's people at the front who are riding really really hard and taking it super seriously but then there's also people that are like this is just a really cool challenge like you're almost not racing each other in a way. You're just like seeing how many laps you can do, seeing the mileage, seeing if you can keep on going. Like, why do you think that fizzled out? I think a lot of the fizzle came from, I think it was event saturation for one. Like there was literally, like I, it got to the point where I could essentially do a 12 or 24 hour race every weekend okay. through the entire summer. And that was just being in the Midwest. So mm. event saturation was one thing. And then the other thing, and this even plays true today is like entry fees are just getting like out of this world. So it's like, if, if I'm going to like, for me personally, it's like, if I'm going to spend up to upwards of $300 to do a bike race, it's like, I want to make sure I come out of it with some sort of experience. I know I'm not going to get otherwise, whether it's cultural, 
whether it's mostly it's cultural, but like just, you know, some type two writing, like something that's super, super hard that I'll remember. It's not just something that you go and do on a weekend and you're like, okay, there's another bike race I did. And then you go the next sure. week, and like, okay, there's another bike race I did. So for, yeah, for me, it's, it's the challenge obviously, but it's also the cultural component and then just seeing new parts of the world, new parts of the country, stuff like that. Yeah. Nice. What age were you for that first 24 hour race you ever did? Oh, let's see. I was in, I would have probably been like 22. Okay. Maybe. Nice. Roughly around there. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at this point you were still living in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I was living in Cedar Falls, Waterloo, Iowa and working at the bike shop. Okay. And this is kind of that origin place of the famous trans Iowa gravel race. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question with that was like, was gravel something that you were riding beforehand? Was that sort of like a training ground or was it just like part yeah, of the I everyday, mean, like not a big deal because half the roads in Iowa are gravel anyway. That's yeah. Like whatever. It's, it's by default. It's like, if you live in the Midwest, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Kansas, whatever, Nebraska, it's like gravel roads are just like, that's just your normal bike ride. But it's funny, like, you mentioned earlier the fizzling out of 12 and 24 hour races. And that was kind of the catalyst for some of trans Iowa because trans Iowa came from an idea where the owner of the bike shop that myself and Mark Stevenson guitar Ted were working at, they used to ride across the state of Iowa in a single day on, on road bikes. It was like five guys. It was basically just a vision quest. They would start on the West side of the state and ride across the East side of the state. And then when Mark and I, basically shared a repair stand we worked face to face you know across from each other for you know seven years it was it was was one day i was like we should just we should do this but let's like let's do it on gravel roads like how can we make it harder or you know kind of fill that need for for a challenge and then he was like okay maybe we can do this and i reached out to a bunch of the 24-hour guys that i knew like you know steve fossilbinder and mike kuriak and like just all these people that had been immersed in that side of the sport forever. And they were like, yeah, let's like, let's freaking do this, man. So it's, I think I ended up putting like a blurb on like MTBR on the MTBR forums. Like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a registration, sign up, you know, and we'll meet here and this is what we'll do. And, you know, I think we limited it to, I don't remember how many people we had the first year, maybe a hundred, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that, if Mark and I would have let it be a free for all, it's like, we would have had no problem getting 300 people to show up mm-hmm. for those trans Iowas. It was pretty nice. wild. Wow. And this is like before, and this is the thing too. It's like, this is before people had GPSs on their bikes. So that's why trans Iowa up until it ended, you know, whatever it was five years ago, it's like, it was ran by cue cards. So it's like, people would have to look at a, a regular cycling computer and then, you know, correspond that with a sheet of paper where it would say you know turn left on third street at mile six and then look down at the cue sheet again for the next turn so it was actually outside of the riding the navigating was probably what i would consider one of the harder things to do you know this idea of trans iowa is like born in the bike shop banter like did you call it a gravel race did you call it like bike packing or was it just like were those words just not even like part of the lexicon yet I, it definitely wasn't like bikepacking definitely wasn't. I mean, yeah. I mean, because the I first remember, year was 2004. I think so. Okay. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I worked, I was, I had my hands in, in it for 
I think three years. And then I stepped back when I took my job with Ergon. So yeah, it probably would have been 2004. Um, but yeah, it was more of, yeah, I mean, gravel race would have been probably some terminology that was used, but then maybe also 24 hour race because like, I think we had like a 30 hour time cut off. So we were trying to, that's really all people knew. It's like, essentially we were like creating a new genre, which yeah. is pretty mm -hmm. commonplace now, but an endurance challenge and a road ultra. I mean, that's basically what it came down to. It, like I said, it was the events I had my hand, the years I had my hands involved with it. Like it's, it's a spring classics vibe. It's like some years yeah. you get dry, dusty conditions and then there's years where no one finished and they couldn't mm -hmm. the roads because everything was just swampy. So yeah. there'd be years where nobody finished. There'd be years where 10 people finished. There'd be years where two people finished. So it had a pretty high attrition rate. Was it purposely incorporating those B roads right out the gate, like those okay. bottomless? Yeah, yeah. The B roads were, I mean, Mark and I, Mark, Mike, I mean, Mark had been involved, has been involved with cycling forever. And it's just like the quintessential gravel road riding in the Midwest is B roads. Like anybody that's, that's ridden those knows that you throw one of those into a course, it's like you never know what you're going to get on the day that you mm -hmm. ride. Absolutely. So I did Iowa Wind and Rock in 2021. Yeah. So that was like my small, small taste of it. And we had a relatively lucky year, but there was a couple B roads where I was just like, my God, I cannot imagine if this was a worse year, just like how bad it would be. It makes yeah. sense why there's years where nobody finishes or only one really stubborn person finishes. Right. Yeah. I mean, the B roads, I mean, Unbound last year where it was wet in the latter half of the race was a pretty would have been a good example of like what many of the trans Iowa events were like. Mm -hmm. And so trans Iowa predated unbound formerly dirty Kanza with, are you familiar with the Almanzo up in yep. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, Minnesota? Yep. Did that, did trans Iowa also predate the Almanzo? Like, I'm curious, like what was that like first gravel race? Does any, is there like an identifiable, uh, like first time that someone was like, this is a gravel race or was it? I, I am not 100% sure, but I believe like in the Midwest, I believe trans Iowa was the first, like it's essentially what is the modern day gravel scene. Like yep. if there would have been, in my opinion, if there never would have been a trans Iowa, there would never be, there never would be unbound. There never would have been dirty Konza. There never would have been gravel worlds because Corey from gravel worlds, Jim Cummins and those guys down from Kansas, it's like they came to, to trans Iowa and they took that experience and they're like, this is cool. We're going to replicate this back home. And then, you know, two years down the road, whatever it was, it's like they had their events, which was super rad to see happen. So it's, I don't think those events would have, they might've happened maybe later on down the road, but mm -hmm. I don't think it would have I don't think there would be a, the modern day gravel scene if an event like Trans Iowa would would have happened. Yeah, that's kind of wild to think about. That. Yeah, like, I know it's it, it's crazy. That like, it's like the springboard for all of it. Yep. Because yep. yeah, it's like salsa. What um whatever their the Warbird I think that's their gravel bike. Mm -hmm. That bike was designed specifically for Trans Iowa. Like they built it for Trans Iowa. They tested it at Trans Iowa. It's like the guys that made the bike came to Trans Iowa years before. 
And it's like, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. The first, <laughs> the first years of trans Iowa, it's like people were just doing it on road bikes with like 28 C tires mm-hmm. and cycle cross bikes. So it's, yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy to think how like that motivated the industry for the most part. So when you uh, started working for Ergon, is that what inspired that move to Colorado or those connected or were you just like time to get out of the Midwest head West? Like what inspired that move to Colorado? Yeah, the move to Colorado was definitely Ergon inspired. So since day one, it's like, it's been a remote job for me. Nice. Um, I've thanks to my parents and family vacations of heading West. It's like my draw was to head West at some point and getting the job with Ergon like made it financially possible. I was fortunate enough to be able to move to Fort Collins and I spent a bunch of time there and then I've progressively made my way deeper into the mountains of Colorado nice. as the year mm-hmm. gone on. So first attempt on the Colorado trail was 2007. What was the, what caught or like how'd that event like catch your eye? Like at this point, I'm guessing it's mostly like forums. Like that's where most of the information is out there. Like, did you know about the Colorado trail race before? Was that something that it's like, oh, now I'm in Colorado. Like I want to go do this. Like what was that first attempt? Like, no, I didn't learn about Colorado trail race until I had moved to Colorado I, th- I think I found out about it on like bikepacking.net, uh, whatever, okay. like the form I think that Scott Morris runs, but it definitely, I picked the hardest one to do for my first bikepacking race. Like I tell them a lot of people, like there's a lot of people like nowadays it's like most bikepacking events have documentaries and you get, you get to see somebody's experience or you get to see photos from the experience of how these races unfold or the environment that you're getting into. It's like, I had seen random stuff on blogs from racers that I did in the past. I'm like, this looks pretty cool. I should go do this. Little did I know that signing up for something like the Colorado Trace, Colorado Trail Race is your first bikepacking race would be like signing up for like the Tour de France is your first road race. Like it's, <laughs> it's in my opinion, it's still one of the hardest, you know, week long bikepacking events you can do. I mean, the only other thing I've done that's harder has been Silk Road. Yeah, nice. Um, but it's cool that a lot of people get fired up for it, but I don't think a lot of people realize it's as hard as it as it is, especially people that aren't from, Col- like a lot of people that come from out of country or people that haven't ridden in Colorado. Like it's it's a mountain bike race on a hiking trail. So it's, yeah. you know, there's 150 miles of hiking in the 500 miles of trail that you're actually going to be on roughly give or take but yeah my out of the gate it's like my first my first attempt it rained from pretty much this from the second we started till i dropped out which i ended up dropping out from trench foot like i did everything i cut down had my shoes all cut up trying to relieve pressure points and blisters and all this other stuff it's just yeah, it's like every time it's like every, with every bikepacking race and even with every Colorado Trail experience, it's like a weakness is exposed that you learn from that you then can go back and put towards, you know, going back and trying to succeed again or use it to succeed in another event. So with the Colorado Trail race, um, I know you've talked about this pretty extensively on other podcasts, attempted it six times and then finally right. got it done in 2001 or a Right. Uh, 2021 on that right. seventh attempt. Yep. I'm curious about like your mindset with, I don't want to call it, well, they're like kind of failed attempts, right? But like not completing it. 
is it something that was just like constantly like eating at you? Like, I have to finish this. I need to get this done. Or was it more of like, that sucks. I carry on with your life. Like how, like, I'm just so curious about like, because I feel like most people will like try once they fail. Okay. I go back a second time. Okay. That's ridiculous. I go back a third time. And then most people, I feel like they reach a point where they're just like, I'm done with this. Like, this is not for me. Like I'm going to go channel my energy towards something else. And you're kind of a 14 year saga of like trying to get this done, finally culminating in 2021. What was like the mindset around that? Well, it's like, ultimately it's like every time you don't finish you're super bummed because it's, it's a big financial commitment buying gear. It's a big training commitment, whether, you know, 12 weeks plus, um, the draw to go, like everything that kept me from finishing was self-inflicted, whether that be, whether that's going too fast, whether that's being ill-prepared with equipment, like there was nothing there was nothing really that took me out of the race other than essentially my own doing. And it's all stuff I knew I could fix. Um, so it's being able to keep going back repeatedly up until I finished on the seventh attempt for me was relatively easy to do because it's essentially a backyard event. Like the trail is like right now from where we're having this podcast, the trail is 20 minutes, 20 minute bike ride from where I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. So like living in Colorado, it's like, you just, you're just like, okay, it's like, I'll go do it next year. You know, it's not that hard to just, to just go and do it, but it probably would have been harder to go back and do it. You know, if there was a big travel commitment involved with it, but anybody that's done it will tell you, like, it's one of the most stunning, one of the most stunning trails you can, you can walk your bike on and ride your bike on. So it's, it doesn't take too much arm twisting, at least for me, um, to go back and do it again. I would even ever, Sorry, was there ever like a specific time goal with it or placing goal with it? Did it shift over time with all those attempts where you felt one way about it and then it turned into, you know what, I just really want to finish this no matter what? Was there a shift in the mindset with completing it in itself? Yeah, yeah. The mindset the mindset definitely shifted not only for Colorado Trail, but just bike my bikepacking races in general. It's like the younger version of me was like you have to do, you have to show up, you have to go as fast as you can. You have to do it in three days. And now it's with any bike packing race, it's like, I know how fast I can go, but the ultimate goal now is just to finish and to feel pretty good doing so. Um, and the result will come. Uh, but yeah, it's, I screwed myself in the first handful of attempts of Colorado trail because I was so set on time goals of getting to certain places at a certain time, which with any bikepacking event or any, any bike race for that matter, it's like, you can't, you can kind of have those goals, but you have to set realistic expectations based on weather and how the trails changed. And there's just, you know, numerous things, how you've aged, whatever it might be, equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you have like any advice for people who have, I've heard you um, in uh, Louis Sedora's podcast, you described it as like a mythical creature that you were like trying to slay. And this is a conversation that me and Andrew have talked about with Andrew and, you know, wanting to go fast on the Arkansas high country race and, you know, kind of my relationship with the tour divide now. And so many people have these things that they're like trying to get, do you have any advice for people who like have this dragon, this mythical beast that they're just constantly battling with, like in order to 
like get it done? Well, I mean, it's, I will be the first person to tell anybody, like if there's something that you, whether it's a bike race or it's an object, other, another object, objective in life, it's just like, if you're like somewhat motivated to go after something, it's like, go do it. It's like, you're only on this planet for 80, 90 years. You've only got so many years that you can do stuff like this. So it's like, go do it. And it's, you know, do it within, you know, the capacity of what you're capable of. It's like the bikepacking thing. It's like, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster. It's a, it's basically you're surfing waves. It's like one minute's the best thing you've ever done. And the next minute it's, you don't even want to be there anymore. And then the next minute is the best thing you've ever done. So yeah. it, the mental component, I think you, de- you know, being ready for that and just being motivated to be out there. Like if there's any hesitation of being out on the trail or on the road or whatever it might be, it's like somebody, that person's essentially going to be in trouble. I, I would think that person would be in trouble. It's going to make their experience going to be a little bit tougher. Yeah. It is like going in feeling absolutely at peace and ready for what you're going to do. Right. Your life's not going to change afterwards. You're not trying to change your life. You're just something that you are genuinely looking forward to do and whatever happens, happens type of thing. Essentially another chapter in the life book. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's like, like I said, I've done, or, you know, Carl trail seven times. And I don't think I've ever, I don't think out of those seven times, any, no experience was identical. Every experience yeah. was different, and, but the trail remained the same. That's what's crazy. Yeah. About. Now that yeah. you have conquered the Colorado trail, is that an event that like still in your backyard, are you drawn to go back out there and give it another go? Or is this one that you're like, I finished it moving on with my life? No, I mean, there's, there's a little part of me that wants to, kind of do an all or nothing, go back and do an all or nothing. Basically, like when I finished it in 2001, the whole goal was to finish it, whether it took three days or whether it took 10 days. So it's, I packed a little heavier than I normally would, or I packed more gear than I normally would. I would like to go back and basically kind of take the the bare minimum equipment within the, within the realm of safety and try to you know, maybe knock a day off or day and a half off. Nice. It's like, I'm definitely, nice. it's like, I'm not the person that's going to chase down Neil's record. It's like, I'm not the person that's going to chase down what Lachlan did. It's, this would just be for me personally to see if, you know, it's possible to do it in four days, you know, closer to the four day mark versus the five day. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and that's just for me. That's yeah. If, you know, if that, if that ends up in a race win, great. If it ends up in fifth place, whatever. I mean, it's, another bike race and is that something where it'd be an itt ever or would you always kind of seek out those grand departs and having the the community and group aspect of it yeah it's like the i the individual time trials really aren't that appealing to me it's like a lot a lot of the reasons i do the bikepacking events is because i want i want to be out there with 100 other people it's like i want the community i want the i want you know being able to know that there's somebody behind me chasing or I'm chasing somebody yeah. in front of me, or I'm going to end up, you know, coming up against, or I'm going to meet somebody at the next convenience store or mm-hmm. you know, sharing that, sharing that experience with somebody else or yeah. a bunch of other people. So is that a combination of both getting the most out of yourself in a competitive sense, but also just having a fuller, richer experience on the trail itself? Is it more of a competitive standpoint or just 
it's in both. all aspects. Yeah. It's both. Yeah. It's like there's it's like I'm 45 now and it's like I could be done racing tomorrow. Like if somebody said, you know, you're done bike pack racing, it's like I'm okay, fine. That's that's what it is. Because <laughs> it's like I would essentially just go do all these events and tour. I'm like, yeah, I, I loved racing Morocco, but it's like now that I'm back, I'm like, I'm like, you know, as I'm go to a few friends. I'm like, hey, we should go to Morocco. We should tour this route over like a week and a half. Mm-hmm. It'd be super rad. But it's like I also, you know, it's like I still like that sleep deprived state. I still like the, you know, you know, forging for food at convenience stores at three in the morning. It's mm-hmm that has not run its course yet. So nice. I'll keep doing it until, until I can't. <laughs> so one of the questions I had written down was just about, and you just touched on it a little bit is kind of your longevity in the sport. Like you've been doing this and that's why, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, like you are a legend just because like, there are only a handful of people who are like doing these sorts of efforts, these sorts of races in the early 2000s and you're still doing it like what do you contribute that longevity to is it just like you just love doing it and you're like why would i stop doing it or is there like what is your kind of like relationship with bike pack racing at this point i mean it's like i just i enjoy the process like i enjoy the training process i enjoy the nerding out over gear i enjoy the going to new locations to ride yeah i mean it's I didn't think I'd be doing it this long, but it's like, as long as my body is letting me keep doing what I'm doing, it's like, I'm going to keep going. You know, luckily the, the, the sponsorships are still there and like, I'm financially stable enough to be able to do a lot of this stuff. So it's, it's still obtainable. So as long as it's with, it's obtainable, it's like, I'll keep going. Um, Once it becomes maybe a financial burden or, um you know just mentally i'm not in it anymore it's like that's basically when the time will come but you know just go until i can go and stop when i when the body says no more yeah yeah oh yeah so, like the results like i'm not driven by results it's like i i enjoy going fast it's like i want to do as good as i can but it's like a 10th place here 20 place there first place here it's like it's like, that's fine with me. It's like, I'm not going to beat myself up over not winning every race or not yeah. being second. You know, it's, it doesn't matter in the law. You're the, having the experience day. regardless is basically yeah, what yeah, it yeah. comes down to. Yeah. yeah. And you're seeing the places. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. So when you are writing up a calendar, your race season, event season is already started with Atlas Mountain Race. Like what are the sorts of things that you're sort of looking for when you are writing up a calendar do you write up a calendar i guess that's another question question like i know a lot of people like they're able to just like randomly kind of pick and choose but then other people are like very laser focused on i'm going to do two big events a year and then a few like small handful things so what's your mindset process around that yeah i mean i really only have a race calendar because sponsors ask for it (laughs) um but for the most part it's like like doing Atlas in February was super early. Like I would normally never do an 800 mile bikepacking race in February, <laughs> but it's like, I've been trying to get to Atlas ever since COVID. It's like, I had, yep. you know, ticket had been booked. It's like, this was finally the year to do it. So I made it happen. But I try to do, I try to find one kind of 
high priority event at least once a month. Okay. Um, nice. So it's, you know, Atlas was in February. It's like March and April, I don't have anything. But then like in May, it's like going to go do Andean Raid in Peru. And then it's after that, it's maybe Silk Road. I don't know. Um, but a lot of it also too, you have to juggle with work. So it's wherever you know, working through on a mountain bike festival. So it's like, you're not going to have a race on that weekend. So it's figuring out what the work schedule is and then figuring out what events are available, but yeah, just trying to find events that are new or do past events that were really, really fun. The, what is it? Bones to Baloo and Tahoe. That's in June. That's one I have on my schedule, which I did last year. Um, nice. But I don't think it's going to happen in June this year based on how much snow Tahoe has been getting. But that's what was that one again? Is that a circumnavigation of Lake Tahoe? What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You basically circumnavigate Lake Tahoe and yeah, some trails north. It's 280 miles, but it's all single track. It's yeah, like I would put it up that, like, for me personally, it's the best single track heavy bikepacking race I've ever done. Like, it 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 beats Colorado in terms of trail quality. Like the trails are just, they're more mountain biker friendly. Like you can ride the whole course. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's just, it's all the iconic stuff. It's like the Flume Trail and the Tahoe Rim Trail. It's like all the stuff that people go to Tahoe to mountain bike, but you're doing it all in one, one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. So, Which I think is fair to bring up at this point. Are you very driven to pretty much mountain bike specific events? Is there any, where it'd be called more gravel that you're even drawn to in like 2023? Yeah. I mean, just for me personally, it's like, I'm a mountain biker first. Um, I'll yeah. always pick a mountain bike race over a gravel race. Um, the only reason I do the gravel events that I do is because like Colorado is still snowed in. So pretty much my gravel calendar will be basically the, you know, from say February until end of May into June and then June through October usually is where I'll try to find mountain bike events. Mm -mm. Um, and then October, November, December, however late it goes, that's then when I'm traveling to find whether it's a gravel event or another bike packing or a mountain bike event, like, gotcha. uh, like, uh, Arkansas high country race last year. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty late. All things considered yeah. early October for you. Yeah. So. so with Atlas mountain race being in February, you're in Colorado over the winter, this is kind of a leading question because I follow you on Strava and me and Andrew have talked multiple times about your training for Atlas mountain race, but what did that training look for? Or what did that training look like? Yes. Yeah, so clearly a very, very different environment than Colorado on paper, at least. Yeah. I, I mean, for myself and even most of the people that show up for that race, I mean, they're all Northern European. So it's people you know, European. So it's all people covering like Germany and the UK. So everybody's in the same boat. Um, but like my train, like my train for all my bikepacking events is like I use LW coaching and I just use her pre-built plans. And basically I adapt, like I did the program as it was prescribed, but I had to adapt it based on how the weather was here at 8,000 feet. So, you know, if, if, a, if I was due for a five hour day, you know, and the train plan called for do a five hour day that mimics your race conditions. It's like, I'm not going to get desert conditions here in Colorado. So then it ended up being, you know, the five hour day of fat biking at Leadville, which yeah. ultimately, you know, ultimately is harder. Starting at 10,000 feet in the snow. Yeah. It's, it's actually harder <laughs> riding, 
but it's, you know, you're not on the same bike and you're not loaded and, and stuff like that. And then it's like, I also did some of the shorter days where they were, you know, anywhere from an hour to two hour long workouts. It's like, they were mostly on Zwift, but I ended up doing it in an enclosed room with a space heater, trying to mimic potentially how hot it could get like Morocco that, you know, the, when Atlas happens, like in the race manual, they basically say like expect temperatures from 32 degrees Fahrenheit to, you know, 80, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's like, I was doing indoor training rides at like, you know, between 80 and 90 degrees, but you know, Atlas this year ended up being like freakishly unseasonably cold. It was more of like 25 degrees Fahrenheit to maybe, I think the warmest it got was maybe 60. Oh, wow. So, I mean, and anybody that showed up for the race this year, like no one's complaining. I mean, they would have liked it to be a little warmer, but I mean, yeah. people are going to want cold. At least those of us in the Northern hemisphere are going to want colder versus warmer. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was fat biking and indoor training rides. And I tried to get to, I went to St. George, Utah for a three day kind of work or a three day training block. And it was wet and probably 45 degrees there. It wasn't even they didn't even have seasonal temperatures. So, you know, it was, it was just unfortunate to not get nice, dry, warm weather to train for mm-hmm. Atlas, but in the grand scheme of things, it really didn't matter because Atlas ended up being cold anyway. Yeah. So two <laughs> questions, how many of those sessions do you think you did on the indoor trainer where you're working like in the heat? And then what were your main boxes you were trying to check when you went down to St. George for that quick training block? Uh, as far as like the, in, like pretty much any indoor training ride I did, I did with the space heater on. So it's, and, you know, figure into temperature, like the shorter the ride, it, or the longer the ride, the warmer, the warmer it would get in the room. So I think like the warmest I ever got in the room was like, like 87, but most of those rides were like 80, 82 degrees, which wasn't too overly that it wasn't that bad, but the training rides in St. George, like that was, that was pretty much three days of just like, it was a it was a full dress rehearsal. So it was going out for three days, basically how I planned on leaving Marrakesh at the start of the race. So it was carrying all the equipment um, or carrying all the gear and, you know, riding for a hundred miles at a time with no resupply, you know, making sure I had everything that I needed um, working on pacing, you know, making sure the lights work, making sure suspension was set up, making sure the tires I was using were ideal. Um, and, what's crazy is like that whole kind of like three corners region of Nevada, Utah and Arizona is like, it's a carbon copy of Morocco. Yeah. I didn't know it at the time, but it's like the rocks, the, the, the long sight lines, the, the way the roads are, it's like, it was like, it was pretty much like being in Morocco. There was, there's no other substitute for it other than being, you know, yeah. And in between each of those days, are you sleeping in a van and like <clears throat> doing everything you can to recover properly? Are you renting an Airbnb? What does it look like in between each of those sessions? So the, so the training plan actually was was set to to actually test sleeping gear. So it was basically it was supposed to be a three-day bikepacking trip. Exactly. But it's like I ended up just doing the prescribed workout and then sleeping in I had an Airbnb that I had rented. Okay. Um, cause for the most part with most of my bikepacking races, it's like, I don't sleep that much anyway. And mm-hmm. I know what I need. Like, I, I know that 
I know what sleep equipment I need to take on certain events to be able to sleep the way I want to sleep. So it's, I knew that part of my system was dialed. So mm-hmm. while I was in St. George, it was all about just maximizing, you know, the 10 hour days on a bike and then getting back home and sleeping good and then going out for the next 10 hours and then sleeping good and then another 10 hours. Yeah. Do you, do you find that being a common theme uh, in training? If you are confident in your, your sleep setup and your equipment where you, you focus more on the recovery versus the the application of every tiny aspect of the bike packing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Now that, that I'm older, I mean, it's, I've noticed probably when I hit 40 that I don't recover as fast as I used to. So it's the fortunate thing with having done enough bikepacking races. It's like, I kind of know what, like, I know what I need to take on certain, on most events. So it's for the most part, I understand what what like what selection of my gear is going to work for a given event um mm-hmm. but i the biggest thing is just going out and getting the body ready to you know spend 10 hours on the bike especially in february yeah. january and february yeah so what does that sleep strategy in the race sort of look like for you i know you said limited sleep are we talking four hours a night if we're over a week or are we cutting it even shorter than that I would guess I just had this conversation in Sedona with somebody, but it's like my sleep strategy for most of my events, like something like if an event is like basically sub three, like if it's 300 miles is I can usually get through the entire event without sleeping. Um, But once we start pushing over 300 miles, it's like, I will typically sleep anywhere from two to four hours and pretty much my sleep schedule is dictated on when I can't see straight. Okay. It got like, there's, and I'm, I'm, I like that this is like coming to the forefront now, but like within the bike packing community, it's like people associated success in bike pack racing with not sleeping. But now people are understanding that in the grand, you know, the grand scheme of things and in the long haul, it's like, you're actually faster in the long run when you stop and sleep for two hours or you stop and sleep for four hours. And that was proven at Atlas this year. It was proven at Atlas last year. Um, like people don't have to be like cross-eyed for five days for five days straight to to be competitive in these events anymore. It's like you can stop, you can sleep, feel wake up, feel refreshed, and then twist the throttle again and do it. You know, just do it day after day. So I was going to say, with three hundred miles, three hundred miles can be very different depending yeah. on the event. So what? Uh, what kind of hour threshold are you talking about with that? Like where you're like, okay, maybe I'm going to start considering mm-hmm. actually sleeping and not just going full send. Like usually the second night is okay. usually like, like usually I can get through the first 24 hours. All right. And then sunrise of this, you know, the third, maybe the third day, second day, whatever it might be. That's when things start to get a little fuzzy where okay. sleeping needs to happen. Um, like at Atlas this year, I think I rode the first day, first day with no sleep, first 24 hours with no sleep. And then, yeah, just like circadian rhythm. It just like, it's like, okay, I need to sleep. So it's like stop and sleep for two hours. And then it, I got fortunate enough to where then a lot of my sleep was, was timing up with being at the checkpoints of that race. So, you know, Morocco is pretty cheap and it's like, you get to a checkpoint and get a meal of food for like two bucks and you get a hotel room for five bucks. So it's like, you know, I ended up sharing a hotel room with a guy from France. And it's like, we both just slept for four hours in a bed, you know, with, you know, 
get out of your cycling kit and mm-hmm. shower and like lay down and sleep for four hours and then get up, feel refreshed and get back after it again. I'm just so fascinated by sleep strategy and like, you know, there are the Sophians of the world out there who yeah. are just like able to just like keep on riding at a pretty good clip on these like, you know, bizarre 10 minute naps. And when I try that, they're, they're worthless. Like I lay down for yeah. 10 minutes and like, that was a waste of time. So I'm very much like thinking about my next tour to run. It's like, okay, four hours every night. Can I get it down to three 30? Can I get it down to three? Is that worth it? That sort of balance. So sleep yeah. strategy is always something that fascinates me because it also feels like it's so individual. And also then there's really not all that much, like, you know, there's like so much empirical evidence about like just training right and training zones but when it comes to sleep right like it's a bizarre thing right there's not all that many like sleep deprivation studies out there in terms of like power output it's just like this black box per se so love talking about sleep love talking about sleep (laughs) well like with just for me personally it's like with the sleep thing it's like like road heavy events i find I find that I sleep more like just because there's nothing to focus on. You're basically just pedaling head down, going forward. Um, but events like Colorado trail, anything that's single track heavy, I find that I don't sleep as much because there's a lot of high focus to like, kind of keep you alert and keep you focused, you know, just keep you awake. Um, but I've also come, you know, it's like, I can't be like, okay, I'm going to stop every night at 1am and sleep for three hours. It's like, if I do that, I'll just sit there and stare at the sky. Like, it's like, I can't, it's like, I have to wait until my body, I have to basically wait until I'm riding. And then it's like, I can feel my eyes getting heavy to where it's almost to the point where it's like, I could fall asleep on the bike. And then that's when I find a place to just pull over and, you know, lay down for, you know, whatever it might be a half hour to four hours, whatever it needs. So you started talking about it. How did that Atlas mountain race experience go? How was Morocco? Talk about it a little bit. Yeah, the the Mara- the Alice Mountain Race is fantastic. Um, as most people know, it's put on by Nelson Trees, who also does Silk Road. Um, What's the um, name of the? He's doing the new one in Greece this yeah, year. The Hel- Hellenic, I think it's called. Hellenic, like yep. that. Um, but I mean, Nelson Nelson's a bike packer. He knows what what we want, what your listeners want. You know, it's like they want an adventure. They want type two fun. Um, and the course is everything I expected it to be. It, the Atlas race is definitely way easier than Silk Road. Like the miles are faster. It's not as rough. There's definitely not as much, there's very little hike a bike, but overall just the Morocco riding, the experience, like the people are super friendly. The, you know, the resupplies were generous. Um, the weather was, was good. It's like, we had no zero wind days. It's like the temperatures were good. Um, the terrain is engaging. The views are amazing. There's, there's really nothing, there is nothing negative to say about Atlas. Um, logistics of it are super easy. Um, I would definitely go back and would encourage other people to go back. Like it's the way Nelson and his team have it set up. It's, it's a pretty low stress environment. Like it's, you're there to race your bike and that's really all you have to do and show up and focus on. So nice, but like, I really did. I mean, the only downfall, like I went in there hoping for a top five finish. Obviously that didn't happen. I think I ended up 12th, but it's, and you know, it doesn't really bother me that much. Um, but it's like, I, there was some stuff I had to deal with. It's like on the second day, like I knew I was getting kind of low on my caloric intake. So I ended up, um, 
when we went through one of these towns, like yogurt's a big thing um, in Morocco. So I ended up buying this orange flavored, essentially like yogurt drink, which didn't sit well. Uh, basically, probably within an hour of drinking it, I then spent the next 24 hours probably with, with diarrhea basically on the side of the road, like every hour on the, on the hour. So it's like, wow, that, that, I mean, I, I mean that potentially wasted a day, maybe a half a day as far as forward progress goes. Um, and then on the third day, I ended up having a flat tire, which I mean, it's rocky as hell in Morocco. It's just chunder. So it's the flat tire sealed with stands, but it was one of those things where it was kind of, it was an ongoing leak for probably two, three hours, right at the stop and refill. But then eventually it did seal. And then I didn't have any mechanical issues after that, but with Morocco and what was really hard to replicate here in the States, it's like the climbing is super steep. Like it's just, it's unrelenting. So it's, you could say probably after the third day, it got a little spicy. The legs started to get a little spicy. It would, you know, no power output to be able to get up that super steep stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, what kind of percentage gradients are you talking about? Oh, it'd be hard. To, I don't even know. Definitely nothing we have here in Colorado, maybe yeah, 12% or more. Okay. So it was basically just like you come around a corner and all of a sudden you would just see a road with like 15 switchbacks going up the next, you know, the mountain in front of you. And then it's like, yeah. okay, that's where I have to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with Atlas, it's like the hardest part of that entire race is the first 80 miles. This, you know, it's, you're basically climbing up and over the main, the Atlas mountain range. And then you have to hike a bike down the backside of it because there's no trail. Um, and this year we started at 6 PM. So we were basically doing all of this in the dark. And then because of the seasonably cold temperatures, a lot of that, what would normally be dry was covered in snow. So we're basically like hiking across cornices and just like, you know, they're not avalanche fields, but they'd be compared to avalanche fields here in Colorado. So it's basically if you walk across these snow patches, like if you lost your foot, you would slide 300 yards down the side of the mountain. Um, mm -hmm. So the adventure was pretty much on like out of the gate, but then after that thing settled down and yeah, it was basically pedaling your bike and pushing your bike and refill refueling where you could and yeah, taking in the views. Nice. So with yeah, that's definitely on the bucket list for me. That, yeah. that event looks incredible. Yeah. So you have experience both in, and this is something I've, asked a number of our guests is I almost feel like there's like two separate genres of bike pack racing that are starting to evolve where you have like almost this like a North American based genre, which is extremely grassroots, right? There's no registration fees. They're not even like organized events because once they become organized events, then you have to pull permits with national forests yep. and all this land, but then also internationally, like I love, you know, the mountain race series that Nelson's putting on because they're just like, there's like fantastic media coverage and there's right. so much information about it. Like, do you think it's going to kind of stay like that where we almost have like an international scene of these like much more organized races with checkpoints and the U S is going to stay this grassroots version, or do you see eventually there being a race like, I don't know what, what the Rocky mountain race where they're, right. you know, in that style, is that ever going to come to the United States or is that just like not feasible here it, with like our land laws? I think I, well, the land laws, I think the, are the big kind of the, 
what's what's holding it back like that would be, i don't like i don't know what it takes in europe to put on these events but like you know like nelson's events or you know events like transcontinental and stuff like those events have a like have staff like there's a lot of people involved in putting those on whereas here in the united states it's you know colorado trail race it's one person or you know arizona trail race it's one person or tour divide it's probably one or two people um but it's i would like to see like a well-organized you know bikepacking race where there's the $300 entry fee and it's, you know, it's ran at that level here in the U S but it's going to, it's going to have to take the right person. That's going to want to have to put in the work and it's going to, you know, want to have to go through the logistics of having to jump through all the hoops of all the land managers, whether that's, you know, private property, you know, for service BLM, stuff like that. Um, I'd like to see it, but I don't think it's going to come to the U.S. anytime soon. I think the U.S. side of it's going to stay grassroots because that's that's what the vibe is here. Um, but time will tell. Ultimately, um, I mean, it's what Atlas Mountain Race was like a four hundred dollar entry fee, and there was two hundred and thirty people that signed up for it. So wow. there's, there's a demand for it in yeah. Europe, sure. But you're getting, I mean. $400 is a lot of money, but when you see what you're getting, you know, you're not just getting a GPX file and that's it. It's like, there's, there's a production that goes on with, with something like Atlas mountain race. And there's a, a production that goes on with something like Silk Road mountain race and same with transcontinental. So yeah. can you elaborate a little bit on what that production is? Like you showing up as a participant, what do you see that takes it to the next level? Well, it's, it's everything from like, you know, you're getting your race cap with your number on it. You're, you're getting a very well detailed GPS file with resupply points. Um, you're getting, you know, there's, there's the checkpoints that are staffed, you know, it's like essentially, you know, these are hotels that he's basically saying like, Hey, I need you to stay open or I'm going to pay you to stay open for three days straight while people come through here. Um, there's the awards banquet at the end. There's, you know, the minimal award ceremony that they have, you know, you know, all in all, like with Atlas mountain race, it's like excluding the flight. It's like an event like that cost me probably a thousand dollars to do by the time you figure in the $400 entry fee and then $600 just to be in Morocco. That's like hotels and food and, and things along those lines. So it's, yeah. Yeah. There's realistically in the United States, I can only see an event happening like this probably by, you know, like I could think like somebody like Mike McCormick that puts on the Breck Epic, like he would be the kind of person that would potentially put something like this on. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting to see like where, you know, the trajectory of gravel, where it really did start as this like super grassroots things with events right. like Trans Iowa, the Almanzo unbound back in the day. And some events right. have just like grown and grown and grown to become like so much more corporate. And this is something me and Andrew have talked about. It's just like, our desire for almost like a little bit of a return to the grassroots events, which are still right. out there, but there's just been like, it's almost like there's this dominance by these like bigger events, which is great because they do a really, really good job putting on their event and like offering this stuff. But then at the same time, I'm also like looking at, you know, a registration fee for Belgian waffle ride in San Diego and it's roads that I ride every single weekend for free. Right. And now they want $240 to ride 
a hundred and whatever miles. And I'm like, I can't justify this. Like, it's kind of right. that weird balance where it's like, where's yeah. that money going? What are you getting for that money? Like, is this worth it? Like that? That's it's very interesting. Of, that's kind of the beauty of the bike industry or the bike culture. It's like, if you want events where your hand is being held, you know, where essentially you're getting the red carpet laid out for your race weekend. It's like, there are those events and it's awesome that people go and do those, but then, you know, there's essentially the people that want the dirt bag or the, you know, the dirt bag vibe where it's, you know, there's no results. There's no timing. It's like you sign up and by putting your name in, in a chat form or something and everybody shows up at this time and you go out and you complete a course and everybody drinks beers afterwards. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's the event, there's those events. So it's, the beauty of it is there's something out there for everybody, you know, for sure. You just do the work, you know, do the research and you'll find it. One of the questions I, I, Oh, Andrew, you got anything? I was going to say, I think you're about to dive into the question I was about to ask Go for it. Oh, I don't think so. What, what, what do you got? <laughs> ask the question, Andrew. Well, I was curious with, uh, we were right before you hopped on Jeff was like your relationship with social media and how, um, you've, seem to find this balance of it's almost like a personal journal with how training's going how life's going these absolutely beautiful photos of you out riding in the landscapes you're in and also updates on like this is what's going on this is what's coming up next this is what i just completed what's what's kind of like your relationship with social media and does it play a role into your job at all you as an athlete what what does that look like for you I mean, like for me, it's with social media, it's like, I would do it regardless. If I was bike racing or not, if I was sponsored or not, I would do it. What you see of me on social media is like, it's as real life as it gets. Like there's pretty much no bullshit. And it's like, I, regardless, it's like, I'm still going to go out and ride my bike. I'm going to go out and I'm going to take the same pictures. I'm going to do the same rides. Um, Of course, there's an added bonus where in this day and age where, with sponsors and stuff like that it's like that's essentially that's gold to them that's what they want but it's it's easy for me it's like i obviously i enjoy riding my bike it's like i enjoy photography i enjoy my i really enjoy my backyard of being in the mountains and through it all it's like it's like i don't do it to sell product to people like it's like i do it because i hope it inspires somebody to either do an event that i do or it motivates them to sign up to do an event or it motivates them to get on a bike or it motivates them to come to Colorado and ride their bike. Or, you know, ultimately it's, it's to motivate people and get them stoked on maybe doing something that they're not already doing, you know, you know, outside or something else in life in general. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's for me, at least my relationship with social media is, is healthy. Like nothing there's, nothing negative about it for me personally like it's i don't really i don't like i personally don't feel like i put anything out there that's controversial to yeah cause that stress or anything so you know if people want to follow it that's great if they think yeah. what i'm doing is is stupid then they just unfollow and go follow you mm-hmm. know go follow something else yeah, yeah. it's not that well, hard so well i personally love it because like anytime i see it i'm like shit um i've been slacking this week or the last couple of weeks it's like it's always really motivating so like if that's one of your goals you're definitely you're definitely achieving that and it's you're highlighting areas where you live where it makes people want to go there and that's i try to do the same thing with the ozarks where it's i try showing what i think is really cool here and if anyone ever sees it and says oh i want to where is that i want to go there then you're doing something right right and that's half the reason these 
bikepacking races are as popular as they are. It's because it's, you know, like with Atlas, they have, you know, photojournalists that document the whole race that share the experience for the people back home that are following the race. But then it also is sort of advertising. I mean, that's what, that's what gets people like us stoked on being like, Hey, maybe I should go to Morocco or, Hey, I should go to Kyrgyzstan to do Silk Road or man, next year I'm doing Colorado trail. You know, it's like, it's, it's other people's experience and the way it's documented that basically sells the experience for other people to, to consider possibly doing it. Absolutely. So you mentioned bones to blue and uh silk road mountain race. Like what else does your 2023 calendar sort of look like this year? Where else are you going to be at? I don't even like trying to think Andean raid. That's in May. I'm going to do okay. the Rafa Yamp rally in early May. Okay. which isn't a race. It's a, it's basically just a, it's a tour. It's a hundred people, 375 miles in SoCal. Um, what else is there? Like really that's all I've got because I don't know after like basically my work schedule as far as events is only planned out through unbound. So it's like, I'll go do Andy and Ray in Peru and then immediately come back and then work the expo for Ergon at unbound. Um, and then after unbound, I'm not sure we basically have a kind of an all system stop internally at Ergon as far as like, we're not going to book events out until we see how the spring goes as far as product availability and things like that. So it's, nice. so right now it's kind of a holding pat, like bones to blue and Truckee goes to the end of June. So that's pretty much why I know what I'm doing up until the end of June. Cause it corresponds with my work schedule. So, yeah. Yeah. Are there any events that are still like, top of the bucket list like i totally still want to try to make this one happen i know you've done colorado trail you've done azt 300 like the 800 still out there the tour divide is still out there any of those like like tour divide really isn't on my radar because it's it it's it's longer than i want to be out plus it also yeah. falls in a really big, busy time for the bike to the bike season the bike industry season um i've learned since doing silk road doing atlas mountain race it's like kind of my my joy for these events kind of runs out after like day six okay like so mm. it's like after day six <laughs> I'm like yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of done with it now um yeah. so it's you know what tour divide is if you're going really really quick it's 14 days so you figure yeah. 20 days um but you know i really don't have I'd like to do something like kind of maybe in like BC, Canada, up okay. in the, you know up there. Um, I know there's events, I just don't know which one. Um, some of the stuff kind of out in Oregon, Washington State looks good, but you know it's in how the bikepacking scene is going now. It seems like there's a new event coming that's announced every week. So it's yeah, it basically just you know I'd like to do Doom, you know, <laughs> your race in Arkansas. It just comes down to like how much energy do I have and for sure what looks, what looks fun and you know what'll you know keep with like the longevity of me being able to do you know three or four or yeah. five days a year yes nice. absolutely nice. so I've only got one last question which is like you work in the cycling industry you've done it four years outside you're training you're racing do you have any other hobbies that are like totally unbike related? <laughs> like what are those like other things that you're super into outside of bikes? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, I do quite a bit of hiking, you know, okay. hiking 14ers, um, fly fishing, 
um, pack rafting, uh, do a little bit of Nordic skiing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I thoroughly enjoy my time riding bikes. I thoroughly enjoy my time working in the industry. So it's like, it's always evolving and it's always exciting. So it's until it kind of hits that wall where it's not fun anymore. It's like, I feel like I'm going to keep on that trajectory, but yeah, let's keep going with the bikes. And then like the other things, it's like, try to do some more through hiking too. Like I've got tons like here in Colorado, it's like in the backyard is just tons of these, like, you know, 80 to hundred mile epic, like backpacking loops that would like to do at some point. So nice. Nice. Well, the fact you've been with Ergon for 16 years alone shows that uh, you're not slowing down on the bike aspect at all and that you truly do love it a lot, which is really cool to see. Yeah. They're Ergon's been super supportive since day one. It's like for that, I can use Atlas as an example. It's like, I basically am like, Hey, I'm going to Morocco to race my bike for, you know, five days or six days. I'm gonna be gone for two weeks. And they're like, sweet, good luck. Keep us posted. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it really isn't, you know, it it brings credibility to the brand. It brings credibility to the product, obviously, but it's like Ergon as a whole, it's like, they definitely cultivate happy employees. So it's like, even within like, you know, the roughly 60 people that work in Ergon internally in Germany, it's like, they want these people, like if they're going to go on a bikepacking trip, they want them to, or if they're going to do, you know, the weeknight bike, you know, group rides or whatever. It's like, they want them to do that. So it's with any, you know, with any job in the, for the most part in the U S it's like, if you want people to, to work well within your company, it's like, keep them happy. For sure. So, and Ergon does a really, really good job. At least, at least for me personally, it's like, I'm super fortunate to be in the situation that I am. Can't complain one bit. Hell yeah. What's uh one question I have is what is your favorite piece of Ergon equipment? My favorite piece is it's the Ergon GS1 grip, which actually just launched today is just became available today is the new version of it called the GS1 Evo. So it's basically the, it's the wing grip that Ergon's known for, but it's more tuned for, for the demands of mountain biking. So riding for actual riding single track. So it's a larger winged uh, grip for mountain biking versus our traditional wing grip that we came out with that, you know, it's more suited for, you know, city riding and leisure riding and things like that. So okay. that's, nice. that's how I got, I mean, that's how I got involved in the brand. It's like, I, I found Ergon because I needed it to solve the issue with not, you know, I was taping my wrists for wrist support for my 24 hour races. So it's, mm. I basically fell into the job through, you know, basically they were solving the problem that, that I needed a solution to. That's badass. A natural <laughs> spokesperson, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And they love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's uh yeah, this has been a great conversation. I don't really have any other like burning questions. I I'm stoked on everything we covered today. Um, I was definitely curious if you had anything else on your radar for the year. And we touched on that. Ezra, you got anything else? I think that's all I've got. Jeff, thanks for doing this. This has been fantastic. Great talking to you. Looking forward to following along on Instagram, all your crazy adventures. It's cool to like know people that like you're at the point where you can like go over to Atlas Mountain Race and like go to these like really cool places and like 
I really like my life eventually financially. I hope that I can like do those right. sorts of things, but it's really cool to like know people to like follow them. And yeah, you're just an yeah. awesome person to follow and a great ambassador and representative of the sport. So thanks a bunch. Wow. Thanks for doing this. This has been awesome. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Pleasure for sure. Heck yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been episode 27 of the Bike Pack Racing Podcast.